If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to pull up the Pew Bible in front of you, and if you don't own one, uh, that's our gift to you. Feel free to keep it. Um, So we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and the title of this sermon is The Worthy Life. Well, today is a special day because we're at a turning point in the book of Ephesians. I've pointed this out several times, but I want to call our attention to it once more at least. Uh, The front half of the book of Ephesians is almost all indicative, or who God is, what he's done, statements of fact. Uh, There's only one imperative or command in the first three chapters as a whole. And it was the command to remember. So Paul's focus was zeroed in on the gospel, explaining to us what God has done through Jesus Christ in the church. He explained to us the realities of being a Christian. You're predestined, elected, adopted, redeemed, and unified in the church. That's all chapters 1 through 3. Today... Paul shifts gears. He moves from theology to practice. Or as Kent Hughes says, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from the Christian's wealth to his walk, from exposition to exhortation. In other words, Paul moves from explaining who we are to what we're called to be and do. In chapters 4 through 6, we'll actually see 39 different imperatives or commands, as opposed to one in the first three chapters. And I want to make sure that we understand this as clear as day. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not based on what you or I do to earn God's love or to merit his favor. The gospel is simply this. Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Jesus lived a perfect life in every single way. He never disobeyed God's perfect law even once. He willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty of death that each and every one of us deserve. He went, as we sang earlier, as our substitute. He died in our place. He was buried. And three days later, he rose from the grave again as our representative. And in doing that, he gave new and eternal life to all who would repent and believe in him, to those who turn from sin and trust in Christ as their only hope of salvation. That's the good news of Jesus. He's done all the work for us and left nothing for us to add to it. Paul spent the first three chapters explaining that to us, along with its implications. And now, because of that truth, we get to live different lives. Lives of obedience and transformation. Lives that display that good news that he's taught us about. So in light of the gospel, therefore, live in this way. That's what chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are all about. So with that in mind, Let's dive into chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This section of text breaks down easily into two parts, which are our two points for today's sermon. Point one, our character, verses two through three, and then point two, divine origin in verses four through six. So point one, our character. Look with me first at how Paul leads into this section in verse one. He leads with, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. You'll remember that Paul used this same language in chapter 3, verse 1. And he's back at it again. And here's what I want us to see. At times, even in this letter, Paul senses the need to clarify his authority. He'll say things like, I, Paul, an apostle. But here, it's different, isn't it? Think about this. He's about to call them to obey Christ in some very specific ways. And he's showing them that this is more than just talk for him. This isn't do as I say, not as I do. Paul has walked the walk, so to speak, all the way to jail for the Lord. His gospel belief has led him personally to action. He's committed. He's a prisoner for the Lord. Let's keep going. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, remember, Paul uses this word walk to mean this is your way of life. This is your normal rhythm. This is how you do things. This describes how you live, your walk. So, he's urging the Ephesians and us to live a life worthy. Such a great word. Worthy. Now, the word translated worthy is the word axios. And it means this. It means fitting or counterbalancing. Weighing as much as, of like value. Worth as much as. So think of a worthy opponent or someone whose talents match your own. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this word as a scale which the weight on one side always equals the weight on the other. So, here's what Paul's saying here. Christian, make sure that your walk or your, your way of life is equal in weight to your doctrine. Make sure that your gospel action matches your gospel belief. In other words, if you believe what you just learned in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, and I hope that you do, your life should look different. Your walk should be affected. Friends, that's my hope and prayer. And to use 
Paul's language in the text, my urging for us this morning, that this church would have solid gospel doctrine and equally weighted gospel life, that our conduct would follow our calling. So, what should our gospel conduct look like? What's the walk that we're being called to? Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First, humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. Amazing, huh? You might think that it would be boldness and bravado, but not so. The very first virtues that Paul mentions are humility and gentleness. Unfortunately, these are two of the most lacking virtues in our world, even in the church. But what do these words really mean? I don't know about you, but for the longest time, I thought humility meant having a low view of myself or thinking poorly of myself. But that's not it at all. Uh, One author comments that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'll say that again. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's right. It's the opposite of pride and placing yourself at the center of the universe. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 4 where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So in our text today, in Ephesians 4, why do you think he starts here? Why would he lead with humility? Because he's driving for Christian unity. And without Christian humility, you'll never have Christian unity. Think about it. If if I'm always thinking of myself and my preferences and my thoughts and my desires, do you think that I'll be concerned with you at all? No. In fact, when your preferences are different from mine, or, or even in the way of mine, you're a threat an annoyance, a problem. That kind of posture kills any hope of unity that we have in the church. Humility, thinking of yourself less, counting others as more significant than yourself. That's where unity begins. And look at what God's word says about this. 1 Peter 5.5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How about James chapter 4, verses 6 and 10? James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will exalt you. Humility says, I don't have to think about myself because God's got me. He'll take care of me. He'll give me grace and exalt me better than I ever could myself. See this. Trusting the Lord in this way is the beginning of gospel unity in the church. Second word, gentleness. It's just as important. And gentleness doesn't mean timidity. It means mild-spirited and self-controlled. Think about Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says this about Moses. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek or gentle. He's very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Yet, Moses stood before the throne of Egypt and spoke authoritatively to to Pharaoh. He was an amazing leader and was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Think about that. He was controlled by God, not his own passions. Again, When you're self-controlled, mild-spirited, you aren't about always getting your way. You're not the center of the universe and self-important. You're gentle. Galatians 6 verse 1 says this is how we should actually restore those who are in sin. Galatians 6 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit Gentleness. I don't know about you, but if I'm in sin, I want someone who's gentle, not someone who's harsh, restoring me. Same idea with correction. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with Gentleness. In other words, we're not meant to just run over people, even when they're wrong, but correct with gentleness. But let's just admit this this morning. This doesn't come naturally to us, does it? That's why we need the Spirit to produce it in us. Gentleness is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, you'll recall. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So how do you know if you're a Spirit-filled person? It's not about being overly emotional in a worship service. Are you gentle? Humility and gentleness. Both words that actually describe Jesus, right? Philippians 2.8, speaking of Jesus, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was humble. Matthew 11.28-29, Jesus himself, from his own lips, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
We become humble and gentle by looking to Jesus, becoming more like him. Now, back to Ephesians, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Our third virtue is patience. And we've already seen this word, haven't we? Yes, it's also part of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, forbearance. Long-suffering. It means to to bear with something or or someone for a long time. The root word here means to be long-souled. I love that. Long-souled. To take a a long-term view, especially when things aren't going smoothly. Do we understand this? (laughs) There's, There's no such thing as a perfect church. I hate to burst our bubbles this morning, but I think that sometimes we join churches expecting that unity will just happen and everything will be rosy colored and perfect. But the reality is that churches are made up of sinners like you and like me. And when you get a bunch of sinners together, guess what? You're going to need a lot of patience. But here's the reality. God has been so patient with us, hasn't he? He, He's in it for the long haul. He isn't going anywhere when we sin against him. And this is where the rubber meets the road on what we believe and how we act. God is patient. He's long-suffering with us. That's his character. We believe that. And we're called to reflect that. Have you ever had one of those extra grace required people in your life? (laughs) Have you ever been one of those extra grace required people? Yes to both. Patience. Taking the long-term view of others as a work in progress. That's what we're called to do. What kind of unity happens when we just blow up at people at the drop of a hat? None. Gospel unity. It involves a lot of patience and a lot of love. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13.4 that love is patient. If we believe gospel doctrine, our lives will be balanced by humility, gentleness, and patience. Our fourth virtue, or character quality, is bearing with one another in love. Very similar to patience. Bearing with one another in love. Another great word here. Bearing with is a word that means to endure with a context of suffering or even persecution. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 4, 12. It says, And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, We endure. That's the word. We bear with. We endure. Same word. And 2 Thessalonians 1.4 Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Consider that. It it might be easy just to, to bear with someone who simply annoys you or someone that you don't share affinity with. 
But someone who's causing you suffering? Someone who's persecuting you? Are you kidding me, Paul? This is supernatural. It's unexplainable outside of the gospel and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's a lot more than just tolerance. And Paul says that we're to bear with one another in love. Look at what 1 Peter 4.8 says. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Simply put, this is the only way to bear with one another. Let's apply this to marriage for a second. This is how marriage works, isn't it? I know when you're, you're dating, your significant other is perfect, right? They can do no wrong. But if you've been married for even a little bit, you quickly find out that you're married to a sinner and you are a sinner. You're going to be sinned against in marriage. You're going to sin against your spouse in marriage. That's the reality in a broken world. We're called to bear with one another in love. We're called to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. If you want to have a good marriage, this is essential. Now, an important caveat. I'm not talking about abuse here. I'm not talking about abuse. If you're being abused, you should call the police. I'll help you call the police. I'm a mandated reporter, and abuse should be reported to the authorities. But what I am saying is that gospel love bears with in marriage, in relationships in the church. Again, I want to be abundantly clear here. If you're being abused, you don't bear with. If you're annoyed or even offended, you do bear with. We'll discuss how this works in the church and when you shouldn't bear with in just a second. But for those who believe in the gospel, the worthy life is characterized by humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And look at verse 3. Our fifth virtue is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love that. Eager, energetic, enthusiastic. Have you ever known someone who would be described by those words? They're all over the place, <laughs> almost frenetically getting things done. In surf terminology, they're frothing. They can't wait to jump in. They're eager. Imagine what that would look like if directed towards unity in the church. Instead of gossiping, questioning people's motives and decisions, assuming the worst about someone, instead of all of that, energetically, eagerly, running around the church promoting unity. What a great world that would be, frothing for unity. And I want us to notice something here. Paul says that unity has to be maintained. It's something that, yes, we, we have in the Spirit. We're unified in the Spirit. We're going to talk about that more in verses 4 through 6. 
but it has to be maintained by effort. It doesn't just happen. And even if unity is present in the body of Christ, it's not something that you can just set and forget. No, it needs to be worked on constantly. Friends, this is worth your time, your thought, your prayers, and your energy. One quick practical piece of advice here. I heard this from Alistair Begg a while back. Ask yourself before you say anything, is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? I'll say that again. Ask yourself before you say anything, is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? Because the Bible says that we shouldn't say anything that's untrue. That's in the Ten Commandments, right? We shouldn't say anything that's unnecessary. Proverbs 11, verse 13. And we shouldn't say anything that's unkind. That's in Proverbs 18, 18. What if, before talking, we took just 30 seconds to really consider these questions? we probably maintain unity better in the church. Maintaining unity in the body of Christ is a big deal. Remember what we learned in chapter 3, verse 10. Heaven, hell, and the world are watching us. What will they see? Will they see a bunch of divided people who have to have their own way? Will they see backbiting and gossiping? Or will they see a group of imperfect people who are eager to maintain unity? That's when the gospel becomes visible and tangible and compelling. Having a rock band and smoke and lights isn't what attracts people to Jesus. It's this. The gospel being lived out in worthy lights, lives. But what's the basis of this unity? What's the basis? Point two, divine origin. Look with me at verses four through six. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times. Paul uses the word one here in what was most likely an early Christian creed. And what I want us to see is the origin of this unity. It's Trinitarian. Do you see it? One spirit, one Lord, meaning Jesus, the Son, and one God and Father. Trinitarian. But let's dig a little deeper. Let's start with verse 4. He says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. First, there's one body. And by body, he's referring to the body of Christ, the church. Just as Jesus himself has one body and one spirit, the church is one body with one spirit. And what Paul's emphasizing is the work that the spirit has done in our conversions. One of my favorite things as an elder here is to get to hear each of your conversion stories when we do membership interviews. Uh, all of you have different stories. 
when it comes to the details of how God saved you. But the same Spirit who regenerates you through the same gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. There's so much diversity in the body of Christ. But the same Spirit who brought us here. We have the same identity in the Spirit. But we also have the same testimony. And this is key. We're not just after unity for unity's sake. And we're not after unity at any cost. Look at verse 5. Paul says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. As I said before, when Paul says one Lord, he's referring to Jesus. For there to be true gospel unity, we have to believe in the same Jesus. Look, there are churches, and I use that term very loosely, that believe Jesus was just a good example, nothing more. Or they believe that Jesus was a myth. These churches are part of what's known as Protestant liberalism. As clear as I can say it, we don't have unity with them. We shouldn't. It's a different religion. If you want to read a fantastic book on this topic, written in the early 1900s, this book is by J. Gresham Machen, and it's a book called Christianity and Liberalism. Fantastic book. He explains that Christianity and liberalism are two separate religions and that we don't, in fact, have unity. There's only one Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, fully God and fully man, the perfect Lamb of God, one Lord. Paul immediately follows one Lord with one faith. Again, we're talking about the content of the gospel here. That Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin. He rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And if you repent and believe in him, you'll be saved. That's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what we believe as Christians. If you've been around this church for any amount of time, you've probably heard me talk about theological triage. Many of you are probably rolling your eyes right now. In medical triage situations, doctors and nurses must decide what's most important versus what's important but not most important, and then what's lower on the totem pole. Theologically, we have to do the same. Tier 1 doctrines would be doctrines that are essential to salvation. Beliefs that are the difference between heaven and hell. Beliefs that are the difference between Christian and not. We're talking about the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Tier 2 doctrines are doctrines that are not essential to salvation, but are essential to local church unity. The difference between Baptist and Presbyterians. We'll hug in heaven. (laughs) Tier 3 doctrines are doctrines that Christians can disagree on and remain in close fellowship in the same local church. 
like eschatology. We can disagree on that till we're blue in the face and still be part of the same church. Now, with that in mind, when Paul says one faith, he's talking about tier one. All true Christians agree on tier one doctrines. One Lord, one faith. Understand this. When we try to, quote unquote, unify with those who don't actually hold to the same faith, when we try to do that, we distort the gospel. We make it confusing for the world who wonders what exactly it is that Christians believe. The unity that Paul's describing here in Ephesians isn't a let's just ignore doctrine and pretend like we're together type of thing. It's not what he's saying at all. No, it's unity in Jesus and in the gospel. It's grounded in truth. And this understanding of theological triage is again helpful here. Hear this. We can have tier one unity with another church in town, but not tier two unity, and that's okay. We'll hug in heaven one day, but we may disagree with them on doctrine or even philosophy of ministry. Here's what I'm getting at. People leave churches for all kinds of reasons. Many are good reasons. Significant doctrinal disagreement, philosophy of ministry disagreement, an issue with the authority of scripture being ignored or trampled on. Those are good reasons. Others leave for bad reasons. We don't like the style of music. We don't like the service time. We don't like the color of the pastor's tie or that he doesn't wear one. At the end of the day, it's okay to leave a church. What I want us to see is that we should pursue tier one unity in the faith even as we go. Paul continues on. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Again, this has to do with our testimony as Christians. While we may differ with Presbyterians on the mode of baptism, we, we both agree that baptism signifies identification with Christ. We're baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's point here. Every Christian shares a common bond of being united with Christ. We're unified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul himself uses the portrait of water baptism in Romans chapter 6 that we just read earlier. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have union with Christ. We all have one baptism. Side note, this is why we connect baptism with church membership. If baptism symbolizes your unity with the church, no one gets baptized into the ether. You're baptized into the body. Side note over. So, we have the same identity and the same testimony. But we also have the same family, don't we? Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As Christians, we have shared paternity, making us brothers and sisters. Isn't that great? God is my Father. 
your father, the father of Christians in Santa Cruz and Singapore. We're family. Families have familial affection for one another. They speak well of one another. They love each other. They're unified. We share the same identity. We share the same testimony and the same family. In closing, I want to make four quick points of application from this text. Point one, unity affects our testimony. Unity affects our testimony. Look what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 22 through 23. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you see that? Unity affects our testimony. Earlier in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And look at this, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When we love one another, and and when we are one, God's character is displayed. Unity affects our testimony. Second, unity is theologically grounded. Unity is theologically grounded. Real Christian unity isn't about some fuzzy, unclear, nebulous, feel-good thing. We experience unity when the core of our faith is made clear from the scriptures. Good doctrine divides, and this is okay. Theological lines in the sand are vital to people truly understanding the gospel. We don't serve anyone by being vague and making them feel like they're part of the kingdom when they're not. But good doctrine, as much as it divides, it unifies as well. It gives us truth to rally around, truth to put our hope in, truth to sing about, truth to stand upon together as waves crash all around us in the culture. Third, unity takes work. Unity takes work. I mentioned the word eager earlier. Eager. It's the word spudazzo. And it means intense effort or labor, a diligent striving. Here's what I want us to see. Churches don't just coast into unity. It involves us being prayerful and intentional. It involves us asking God to give us the character described in verses 2 through 3. It involves us laying down our pride. It involves us living out the gospel toward one another. It takes work. Fourth and finally, unity isn't an option. Unity isn't an option. As Christians, unity is essential. We don't get to decide that we don't like and don't have to obey this calling. 
This isn't kind of a, an a la carte thing where you can choose whatever you want and leave whatever you want. God has given us unity through the Trinity in the church. To live in disunity is to distort God's character and to lie about him to the world. Santa Cruz Baptist Church is a church that believes gospel doctrine. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let your conduct match your confession. Pursue unity that you already have in God. Let's pray.